So I became a Christian somewhere around my junior or senior year of high school. Around that time, I started attending the Young Adults Group. They talk about all the things, right? Saving yourself for marriage, not getting drunk, watching how you speak, all really good things. I was in, 100%. Let's do it. I wanted to follow Jesus. Nothing was more important to me. But then they came for my music. I remember going to the Jesus Book and Gift Store over in West Long Branch. And in the music section, they had this chart. If you like the Beatles, then you'll love blank. If you like Weezer, then you'll love blank. If you like Led Zeppelin, then you'll love blank. And, and they were wrong. <laughs> they were wrong. I did not love any of the music they said I would love. In fact, not only did I not love it, I kind of hated it. I tried. I did. I bought CDs. I listened to it. But for my ears, it just wasn't as good as what I was used to. Now, if you love Christian music, that's wonderful. And, and there's a bunch of it now that I really do like, but as a 17-year-old kid who spent hours a day in his room playing guitar, trying to emulate Clapton, Hendrix, and Slash, I couldn't get into it. If I'm honest, I was nervous at first. Was music an idol in my life? Probably. On the other hand, could I have used a little bit of nuance in how I was being taught to engage the world around me? Sure, I think most of us could have used a little bit of that, especially those who came of age in the 90s evangelical subculture, but that's not the point of my story, and that's a sermon in and of itself. Music was an idol in my life, and I was unwilling to get rid of any of it at the time. This morning, we're going to talk about loving God with all of our heart, all of our soul, and with all of our strength. While at the same time, we're going to dig into how easy it is for us to allow the good, the bad, and the indifferent things of this world to pull us away from the allegiance we are called to give to God. Pastor and author Tim Keller describes an idol, and I have a slide for this, as anything or anyone more important to you than God. Anything or anyone that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything or anyone you seek to give you only what God can give, a counterfeit God, something so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. That comes from the book Counterfeit Gods. I would strongly encourage all of you if you have not read that book to buy that book and read that book. It is an excellent book. But I think Keller's right, and my hope for this morning is that we would all recognize that there are still things that we are clinging to from our lives in Egypt, from our lives prior to coming to faith. Our God is a jealous God, and he's unwilling to share the allegiance due to him with anyone or anything. And while that might sound arrogant, we need to also remember that while he's jealous, it's a jealousy grounded in the love he has for his people, those he brought out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. See, devotion to God is what freedom looks like. Devotion to God is what freedom looks like, and it is the path that will lead to our flourishing, to our being more and more conformed to the image of Christ. For those of you wondering, I didn't throw away all my sins. But I learned their 
probably were some songs that I should refrain from listening to. Let's jump into our text. We're in Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be looking at the first two commandments this morning. Last week, we looked at what we're calling the prologue of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We talked about how these ten words, as we describe them as, as it's literally pointed out to in our text, served as the terms of the covenant between God and his people. A covenant grounded in love, if you remember who our God is, what he did for the people, a love that he demonstrated by rescuing Israel from slavery. This was salvation by grace. This was salvation by grace. God acted on behalf of his people. We also talked about how the terms of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, while on the surface they appear to be restrictive, are actually stones making up this pathway of freedom. As I quoted last week, these commandments are rules for the liberated life. Rules for the liberated life. Israel is a freed people learning to walk in their freedom, which brings us to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods couple things, the context, right? There's the immediate context, and then there's the broader context. In the immediate sense, everything we spoke about last week, God is the Savior of Israel, and now he's calling them to live in light of that salvation. This is very similar to what we find in, in Paul's letter to the Romans, in Romans chapter 12. See, see the book of Romans, and, and one day we're going to preach you that book, and it'll be a, a lovely six years. Um, but the book of Romans lays out the salvation of God in Christ. And then the Apostle Paul says, therefore, which means in light of everything I just said, everything I said about your sin, God's grace, what was accomplished for you at the cross, therefore present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. In other words, what Paul is telling the people of Rome is very similar to what that first commandment I saved you from your sin. All I want is everything. That's what he's saying. I saved you from your sin. All I want is your entire devotion and your heart given unto me. That's what he's asking of us. And some of us are sitting here like, well, that's a lot. That's a lot. But I submit to you. That in submitting ourselves wholly unto God, wholly unto Christ, what we actually experience and what we actually find is the freedom that is talked about throughout the scriptures. Because the commandments, as we said, are rules for the liberated life. It's how we become free. We are free, and it's how we walk in that freedom. We've been freed by the grace of God, and he calls us to walk in that freedom. That's what this whole thing is about. That's what these next three months are going to be about. But the broader context and why this commandment makes so much sense is that Israel, a little bit of history, right, has just lived for generations under the rule and reign of Pharaoh. They were a people steeped in polytheism, the belief that there are many gods. They probably believed in those many gods, and, and they worshipped those strange gods and those foreign 
gods. And, and based on what shows up a little later in the text, they created a golden calf to worship. So they were familiar with this idea of creating images and idolatry, and they kind of celebrated it. They were into it. And if you read that passage about the golden calf, it's, it's, it's like, oh, like, take it easy, calm down, like dial back the party. In fact, the first commandment doesn't seem to be a statement of monotheism. And the Bible does teach monotheism. But more so a statement of allegiance. It's a statement of allegiance. Now we believe with all of our heart that there is one God. 100%. But yet all of us bow down to other gods. We all do it. And that's what this text is getting at. That's what this text is getting at. And the sad part is we bow down to other gods that don't actually exist. They actually have no power to give us anything. But yet we submit ourselves to So in other words, the first commandment was a call for Israel to unlearn generations of sin and idolatry to submit to one God rather than a pantheon of in Deuteronomy, the context is a little bit different. Remember, the commandment showed up in two different places. First, at the beginning of the journey, about three months after that scene at the Red Sea where God parted the waters, and then at the end of the journey, 40 years later, when the Red Sea generation had all died off. This generation, they grew up in the wilderness. They weren't exposed to the polytheism of Egypt, but they were about to enter a land just as idolatrous. See, they needed to learn and be warned about the pitfalls that were in front of them that lie ahead. And so the point is that Israel was not only physically free from the clutches of Pharaoh, but they were also free spiritually, rescued from the grip that these foreign gods had on them. And this is where we start to see ourselves in the face of Israel. This is where we start to see ourselves in the face of Israel. Remember the music I was unwilling to give up. To give you some context, I grew up in a family that loves music. I saw the Rolling Stones, the Kinks, and Poison all before I turned 15 years old. I started playing guitar in the sixth grade and was in my first band by the seventh. To turn my back on my music was to turn back on an enormous part of who I was. That was really hard. Now let me be clear, my point is not that listening to the Rolling Stones is wrong, nor is it wrong to love rock music, hip-hop, whatever. The point is taking a good thing and turning it into an ultimate thing. Taking a good thing and turning it into an ultimate thing. The first commandment is calling Israel to have no other gods before me. Whether it's a good thing, whether it's a bad thing, whether it's an indifferent or amoral thing. I want to pick up this phrase a little bit, though, this, this phrase before me. has a variety of possible translations. Old Testament scholar Patrick Miller summarizes the options well. He says, this, this phrase in, in the Hebrew could mean before me, that is, in front of me. It could mean beside me, that is, alongside me. It could mean besides me, that is, in my place or instead of me. It could be over against me, that is, in hostile confrontation with me, against my face. So the phrase can literally mean any of the above. And so the ultimate point that the commandment is making is that God is unwilling to share the allegiance due to him with anyone or anything in whatever way we might imagine it to be. 
You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. And then I started thinking this week, all right, so then what are our gods? Because we don't typically, in, in Western civilization, in Tom's River, Manchester, Ocean County, whatever, we don't typically worship like, like graven images. That's not what we do. That's not like our bent. And I don't think that's the bent of the people in this room. But we certainly have things that we tend to worship. Do I worship my family? Or do I see them as a gift from God meant for his glory? Do I worship money and the pursuit of it? Or do I view it as a means to serve the kingdom? Am I obsessed with food, sex, or drink? Or do I recognize them as good gifts from God given to be enjoyed in their proper context? And these are the things that we start to wrestle with when we talk about idolatry, when we talk about serving other gods. That's the wrestling match that we experience on this side of the cross. The things that are placed in front of us that, that are good things often. Now, there are bad things. We can easily spot out the bad things. We're good at that. Especially as Christians, as conservative Christians, we know the list of the bad things. And we tell people about them all the time. All the time. Probably too much. That's out of fact. But it's the things that are, that are good that we turn into ultimate things. Again, you've got to read Keller's book. It's really good. I'm basically just kind of screwing on his stuff. The point is that God is establishing the terms of the covenant. And the funny thing about it is it's structured in a similar way to the terms of a marriage covenant and the vows we take on our wedding day. Right? There's no one who comes before or in front of my wife. Nobody. There's no one on equal footing with my wife. There's no one who can take the place of my wife. And there is no one permitted in my sphere if they stand in opposition to my life. Now this is not a restriction on my marriage, but rather it allows my marriage to flourish. It's not a restriction, it allows my marriage to flourish. And this is also true for our relationship with Christ, that when we walk in holiness, sacrificially loving God and neighbor, we are drawn into deeper communion with him. And the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel, the good news of King Jesus is that when we breach the terms of the covenant, which we will, we can throw ourselves on the mercy and grace of Jesus and he welcomes us back into fellowship with him. In fact, and what's so cool about grace, it's the grace and forgiveness of God in Christ that enables us that enables us to demonstrate grace and forgiveness towards those who have sinned against us. This is good news. The gospel not only allows us to have fellowship with God, but it helps us to recognize our own faults and our own need for forgiveness so that we are able to forgive those who sinned against us. It's this beautiful picture of unity and fellowship should we submit ourselves to it. Should we submit ourselves to it. And so the first commandment, what it's demanding, is wholeness from us. Explain. It's a devotion that views everything through the lens of our love for God. There can be no competition. And so whatever it is that we love, whatever it is that we value, whoever we believe ourselves to be, who we identify ourselves as, whether it's a particular political bent, our ethnicity, our race, and even 
our sexuality, this command for us to have no other gods before Yahweh is a command to take all of that stuff and submit it to the rule and reign of Christ, which is actually what the rest of the commandments begin to unpack for us. It's to take all that stuff, whatever we feel we might be, whatever we feel we might love, whatever desires we have, and it's to bow them in submission to King Jesus and say, okay, does this work for my relationship with you? And we submit ourselves to his rule and reign, and, and we allow him, through his word, through the church, to speak into our lives, to let us know, be like, actually, that thing you love, that's out of step with who I am. You can't, you can't actually do that. I know you feel like you want to, but you can't because it's out of step with who I am and, and my rule and reign. And this other thing, oh, that's a good thing. That's good. I, and, and you should love that thing. However, you still need to submit into me so that I can allow it to flourish in the way it ought to flourish. So that I can breathe life into it in the way it needs to to live. And that's what this first commandment is getting at. It's like an all-encompassing commandment. It's this umbrella under which all the other commandments fall. Loving God, no other God before him. And, and, the, and the rest of the Old Testament unpacks this with, with the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. What do you think that means? Have no other gods before me. Have no other gods. And when, and when you go into the land, and for us, as we live under the sun, and we're bombarded with different options, it's going back to that command, having no other gods before Yahweh. Loving him with all of our heart, soul, and strength. Submitting our worldviews to that, submitting our politics to that, submitting our sexuality to that, all of it we submitted to having no other gods before Yahweh. Loving him with all of our heart, soul, and strength. That's what this is about. And we allow him to then reveal to us how we are to live in light of our salvation. That's the point. And that's going to that's gonna start to, to change us. That's going to start to, to even frustrate some of the paths maybe we were already on. And we're going to have to make decisions to, do I love God more than whatever it is that's in front of me? That's the question we always wrestle with. We still, right? Those of us who, who have been walking with Jesus for a little bit of length of time, we still wrestle with that. Because remember, we're saints who speak with the accent of a sinner. It's still there. Egypt's still in our bones, right? It's still like, oh, remember? Remember when we were there? Remember how great it was? And I still have that. I'm like, man, remember when I was in a band? Oh, it was. Let's keep moving on here. Verses 4 through 6, carved images. This is the umbrella which these identities, our loves, obsessions, our desires, they all fall. See, when we refuse to submit them to the rule and reign of God in Christ, it is idolatry. Good things become idolatrous things. Bad things become idolatrous things. Indifferent things become idolatrous things. See, but idolatry in the ancient world was much more obvious, right? People were literally carving images of their gods to worship, but the heart of the matter still remains. 
read the text in verses 4 through 6. He says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. But shall be steadfast love to those, to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. A couple of things that jump out at me as I read that text. The command is clear. To not make for yourself a carved image. So a quick word search on carved image in the Hebrew Bible shows that this is a word that is associated with worship. Therefore, it doesn't mean that we can't draw and paint landscapes or even paint portraits of people. Like, that's not what this is about. This isn't about art. Right? This isn't about going to a museum and enjoying the beauty of, of, of the skill set that people have, whether it's painting or sculpting or whatever. That's not what this is getting at. Because if you look just a few verses down, it says in verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. So there's three terms in this passage already that are all worship terms. Carved image is a worship term. Bowing down and serving is a worship term. The point is, you shall not make images and worship them and use them to worship. There's twofold thing going on here. The first is that this is a command against idolatry, what we worship. Remember, Israel has spent the last few hundred years steeped in idolatry. But the second thing is how we worship. It's a warning against trying to conjure or manipulate God to bend to our own will. This was how images worked in the ancient world. They were used by the ancients to bring the gods down. But this is not how Yahweh operates. He does not bend to our will, but rather we are called to bend to his will. That's a lot of how this is going because a lot of this command is also talking to Israel like, don't make images of Yahweh either. Like, don't worship the, the gods of, of your neighbors and make images to them, like, like, like Baal and, and making a shadow holes and all things like that. Don't use those things, but also don't try to make an image of me either. In other words, don't try to manipulate me into doing your will. No, 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 that's not how this relationship works. That's what he's getting at here. And in fact, what we see taking place in the world and even in the church is an attempt to force God to fit into the box or image we have created in order to justify the life we're living. What I love about the commandments is that it's going to hit on a number of areas. In the command to keep the Sabbath, we will be forced to engage the way we approach our careers. We're going to be forced to think through that. We're going to be forced to wrestle with, am I, am I taking my cues on how to, to work and rest from, from Scripture and from God and from, and from the church? Or am I taking my cues from, from the powers and authorities that are, that are puppeteering the world that I live in? We'll celebrate our stance on abortion as we look at the command not to murder, but will we allow the Spirit of God to convict us in how we approach and view other groups of people, groups that may be are different from us? The command to not bear false witness will, will hopefully challenge us to open ourselves up to the community of faith a 
Hence Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and, and our digital selves that don't look anything like who we really are. And that word against coveting will force us to rethink ambition as it digs beneath the surface of why we do what we do. See, the next few months are going to be a finger in our chest, but we need to remember whose finger it is. It's the God who brought us out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's a finger of grace, and, and what he's offering us is freedom. Freedom to become what he has saved us to be. Freedom to become what he has saved us to be. The rest of the text tells us why he's unwilling to share his glory. And the consequences for those of us who persist in our rebellion. It says that God is a jealous God. He not, he's not willing to, to share to share his glory with anyone, to share the allegiance that's due to him. And, and, and every spouse in the room is saying, yeah, I'm not willing to share that with my spouse either. Like, that's my wife. No one gets her. She's mine. And I'm her husband. And if we don't like that, that mine, hers kind of thing, like, like that, that's, that's what we've committed ourselves to. And the consequences of persisting in sin is that it's going to affect generations to come. That's what he says here. He says he's going to visit the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. I mean, that's just, that's just how sin naturally works, right? Like, we see that in society, that, that families who, who, who are, 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 are unwilling to submit to, to Christ and unwilling to submit to, to even a Judeo-Christian sort of model of living, that, that it affects generations. That, 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 that single-parent homes, and, and, and for those who are single-parent parents right now, and you're, you're committing yourselves, and, and you're, you're striving to serve your children well, and, 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 and submitting to Christ, and trying to honor God in your life, praise God, but, but it's probably more difficult than if it would have worked out the way it ought to have worked out, because that's what sin does, it makes things messy. It makes things messy. The beauty is grace, though, right? We can have, we, we, we mess up, we, we wander from the path, but, but God gives us grace. And when we enter into this church world, this church family, we're blessed with a family of God. And so, so those of us who have made those, those bad decisions in the past, we have the beauty of the church and the grace of God mediated through the people of God to enter into that mess. But sin does have a way of affecting the generations that are to come. And we know this. We know this. But those of us who walk in freedom, who allow the Holy Spirit of God to guide our lives, those of us who choose life, who submit ourselves to King Jesus, we will experience what, what the Bible calls the steadfast, Love, that Hesed love reserved only for God's people, that covenant faithfulness, that loyalty that only comes from God and is reserved for us. Those of us who, who walk in faithfulness will experience that. What does walking in faithfulness mean? For us on this side of the cross, it means submitting ourselves to the person and work of Jesus. That's what it means for us. That's what it means. It means recognizing that Jesus of Nazareth, some 2,000 years ago, entered creation, 
the creation that he spoke into existence, that he lived faithfully, submitting himself to the law of God, never once failing in that endeavor, spending 40 days in the wilderness, tempted by the devil himself, saying, now I'm going to worship God. And then he died on the cross, suffering the death that was intended for us, and then he rose again three days later, proving, justifying that everything he said and did was in fact right. Those of us who bend our knee to that man, to the king of kings, will experience forgiveness of sin, reconciliation, redemption, and we will be raised up on the last day to be with God for all eternity. That's what we have to look to when we bridge the covenant. We're going to breach the covenant. But it doesn't mean, right, where, where, like, that we should sin more, right? Paul says, should I sin more so that grace may abound? He's like, no, that's a bad idea. That's a bad idea. And he says it a little bit more forcefully than that's a bad idea. Because it may never be. I mean, that's very forceful. You guys felt like it may never be. Um, there are still consequences to sin. And that's what we need to recognize. We're not saved by our works of the flesh. We're not. We're not saved by, 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 by checking all the boxes. We're going to see in just a few minutes what I mean by that. We're saved by the grace of God. And then he calls us to a life of faithfulness, to a life of freedom, to a life of freedom. True Israel, Jesus of Nazareth, walked a life of complete devotion to his Father. And he has credited that righteousness and devotion to our account. And he tells us to now live in light of who he has made us to be. This is good news. This is really good news. If you flip with me to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 19. Lest you think this is only an Old Testament idea, we're going to be looking at verses 16 through 24. It says, And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he's talking with Jesus right now. He said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who's good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Good question. Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus says, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Now when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. He had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven couple of observations. This man desires eternal life. And so he asks how he's going to get it. Jesus engages the conversation by telling him he has to submit to the Ten Commandments. And you know what he does? He starts with the easy ones. He starts with the easy ones. And so the man's like, I'm good. I haven't done any of this. In fact, I bet there are a number of people in this room who have been faithful in this list. On the surface. But then he raises the bar. 
raising the bar. He says, if you would be perfect, or a better translation, if you would be whole or complete, go, sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. The text says that the man went away sorrowful because he had a great many possessions. He was rich. I think people get confused with this passage sometimes. Does this passage demonstrate that Jesus cares about how we spend our money? Sure, it does. I think for sure it does. Does this passage teach about the need for us to care for the needs of the poor? 100%. But that's not the heart of the issue. It's not the heart of the issue. This wealthy young man, even after upholding all was not captured by Christ. His heart was not captured by Christ. His love for God was transactional. Sure, he was a moral guy. He's the sort of guy who we would have no problem doing business with. We like this guy as our mechanic. We like this guy as a contractor working on our house. He had integrity. That was evident. But when you start to dig down just a little bit below the surface, his heart had been grabbed by something else. He had a backup plan. He had multiple irons in the fire should submitting to the commandments not work out. He had his wealth. He had his possessions. He had his stuff. And his stuff was what he took put in place of the first and second commandment. That's what he did. What's the point the first two commandments are not there to condemn us. Not there to condemn us. It might feel condemning if we just read them and kind of walk away and think like, oh, okay, cool. Like, I guess I don't love God with all my heart. Awesome. But no, they're there actually to test us. Who or what has captured our heart? Who or what has captured our heart? To answer the, that question, we need to wrestle with the things we love, the things that move us, the things that we hold near to our hearts. And we need to answer the question that Jesus posed to Peter. Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? I don't know what these is for all of you. I don't know. You've got to fill in that blank for yourself. I know what it is for me. In full transparency, it's my family. It's my wife. It's my children. If push came to shove, this is where my love for God would most likely be challenged. This is where it would be challenged. And, and it makes sense. I'm Italian, right? Like, family is everything. It's like all we're about. It could be overwhelming sometimes. But remember, it's not just bad things that can draw us away from God, but it's also the good things and the indifferent things. But the truth of the matter is that the only way I'm able to love Deanna and the kids in the way they need to be loved is if I am wholly devoted to Christ. So you can say the best way to be Italian is to submit to Christ. Then I will love my family the way they need to be loved. Write that down. What these first two commandments are really getting at 
is whether we're going to sacrificially love and serve God with all of our heart, soul, and strength, or if we're going to love and serve ourselves. That's ultimately the crux of the matter. Loving God leads to freedom, while loving ourselves leads to death. It may not be an immediate death, but our sin has a way of catching up with us. Our worship has a way of catching up with us. And what I think is really interesting and it's not the same word for image. It would have been cool if it was, but it's not. But the idea of image, the idea of setting up graven images, of setting up images in, in temples to worship that took place in the ancient world, is that that's exactly what God did in creation. And I share this with you. That the garden, when it was created, was structured as a temple. A garden temple. And God does place an image in that temple. He places Adam and Eve in that garden temple to work and keep the garden. And, and, and those of us who have come after are image bearers of God, which means that if we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, and strength, it only makes sense to love our neighbor as ourselves. If we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, and strength, only makes sense to love our neighbor as ourselves. Because that's the image. And so when we serve one another, and we sacrificially submit ourselves to one another, as Ephesians talks about, we're loving God. We're loving God. And those of us who do it as followers of Jesus, we, we, we get to experience that relationship with God in a particular way. It even says, right, like, like, like what you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. There's this sense we serve one another. We are directly serving one So this is what it's all about. This is what the commandments are all about. We love God. We love neighbor. We love God wholly, all of ourselves, everything we are, we submit to the rule and reign of God. And then we go love our neighbor as ourselves. And then the world will catch a glimpse of what God's like. What it is. It's, it's, it's actually a simple formula. But the difficulty comes when, when the things we hold dear to our hearts are challenged. And we're going to see that over the next few weeks. And my prayer and my encouragement and my challenge to all of us, myself included, is that we would recognize when, when, when our shoulders are starting to go up. And that we wouldn't see that as a reason to, to argue and justify ourselves, but that we would say, okay, let me, let me take a minute. God, is this you? Is this your finger in my chest? If so, I want to submit to it. That's my challenge to all of us, myself included, that when we start feeling that feeling, like, oh, no, 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 you can't come in, like, like how I felt with my music when I was 17, oh, no, 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 no. Like, fine, I'll stop drinking, but you, no. Is it God's finger in our chest? Is it God's finger in our chest? When, when all of a sudden some of our political leanings start to, we start to, oh, no, 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 well, that's different. Or, or when, it's, when it's how we operate in our business or, or how we operate as, as workers or whatever, like, oh, no, that's different. The minute we start saying, oh, no, that's different, I challenge you to take a minute and ask, God, is this you? Is this you? Search the scriptures. I'm not saying you believe everything I say. Search the scriptures. Submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. And 
See if God is trying to form you and shape you. Because he is. He is. That's why we're all here. That's what we want. We want to become more and more like Christ. That's what I want. That's what all of you want or else you would not be here. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that sometimes grace is hard because it pushes us. Oh, but Father, grace is so good because it saves us. And we thank you for that truth. Lord, I pray that you would be with us, that you help us to walk in faithfulness, open our eyes to where we might have blind spots. Show us what freedom looks like, Lord God. In Christ's name we pray.